This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by digital media. Here's my friend Lauren Good. She's from The Verge. She also hosts Too Embarrassed to Ask. And she's here with a word from a sponsor. Today's sponsor is Sortable. Ads suck and monetizing your website is hard work. Sortable uses technology and machine learning to make intelligent decisions about which ad networks will perform best for each user on your site. Stop worrying about your ads and focus on creating great content. Go to sortable.com slash recode. Thanks, Lauren. This interview is brought to you by SoFi. SoFi is a modern finance company. They offer incredible rates on student loan refinancing that saves members an average of $19,000. They'll set you up with a career coach. They'll help you switch industries, and they will help you conquer your student debt. Head over to SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. This interview is also brought to you by Mac Weldon. They make awesome hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks. I am wearing the socks right now. I bought them with my own money. Jason Horshorn can uh, attest to them. They're a brilliant blue today. You look fantastic. Say it with enthusiasm, Jason. Uh, listen, you're the only man where I look at his feet. Thank you very much. Um, and if you smell my feet, they smell great because these socks are made of naturally antimicrobial fiber. It's like a flower store in here. It's fabulous in here. These socks and anything else you want to buy from Mack Weldon are easy to acquire. You go to MacWeldon.com and you'll get 20% off and put the promo code RECODE in there. So you save money. I get a little benefit. Um, go to MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. I cannot imagine you won't like this stuff, but if for whatever reason you don't, you hang on to it, you keep your money, Mac Weldon will not ask you any questions. 20% off, you go to MacWeldon.com, use the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. Hey, Jason Hirshhorn, how are you? I'm doing all right. I'm glad to see you in person. I've not seen you in person for a while. Good to be here. Thank you. There's a reason I haven't seen you in person. Yep. You've been hibernating out in L.A., recuperating out in L.A. Had heart surgery in August. Uh, close call, but, um, you know, on the mend. I'm excited to be alive. Good not to be dead. We are glad to have you back. Uh, you scared the bejeebus out of us. We'll talk about your experience with sure. the healthcare system. But yep. I want to. there's a handful of people who won't know who you are without yep. introduction. Who are they? <laughs> you, have a, you have an awesome, long career in digital media. Yep. You are, I think, the crankiest person in media I know. Well, much crankier than I am, which, sure. is, which is impressive. Let's tell me what you're doing today. Your day job is? I run a company called Redef, uh, and we make curated information streams on certain industries, such as media, technology, fashion, music, and sports, and others are coming. And uh, you can get that in newsletter form or uh, on Twitter or on our website at redef.com. So the main thing you do today, this sounds like when I have the folks with the skim on, they're a newsletter company. They don't want to be called a newsletter company. Sure. And they're going to branch out from that. But the main product that you're known for today is this newsletter. This we started as a newsletter, you know, year, I think eight years ago um, when I was running uh, digital media at MTV Networks. And you did it for fun? Um, did it for fun. It was more of, you know, I was reading stuff and, and wanted to get executives interested in what we were doing because I was working at a TV company. And and uh, I turned it into a compendium and then into a newsletter and then years later into a company. I'm not um, embarrassed by the the word or the form of newsletter, but we don't distinguish as to how you would get right. it. We so I can get it a million ways, but the main way yeah. people get this thing, they get this email in the morning. It's, yep. it's not really even a newsletter. It's like here's a giant – Yep. A giant dump of things from the internet the, that you've the, actually curated. Yeah, the, for, the format is basically, you know, we have sort of an image of the day which recalls some sort of movie or some pop culture moment, um, a quote of the day. You have a then, long, angry rant about oh, things that Rant have, and a rave. Things it's that also have disappointed rave, you. You know, things that I'm, I'm interested in or that I like, but also things that disappoint me. Um, they could be media. They could be personally related. And then you get 20 stories that we think that you should be reading, usually long-form journalism, 
or deep looks at right. stuff. So it's not, here's what happened overnight, here's what you need to know to start your day. It's here's stuff that's going to make you smarter if you read it over time. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with daily news. It's just we think that that is an area that is fully covered and doesn't need the discovery issues uh, that, you know, let's say longer form journalism does. And I think I think one of the best reasons to read your newsletter, in addition to the fact that you go through all this stuff and it's really fascinating, is if you're reading it, you feel like, all right, I'm reading the same stuff that many famous moguls are reading, right? How many folks are, are reading the newsletter period today? Um, you know, a little over 50,000 are, are reading today, um, give or take. Um, we're about to start looking at growth. It's not something I ever really thought about before because it was more hobby-based, but now that we have our platform built out and our form factors. So it's 50,000 people, but many of them sort of move and, and, and run the media world. Yeah, I mean, you, you have, you know, the big names like Barry Diller and Rupert Murdoch and James Murdoch and, you know, uh, Jeff Weiner from LinkedIn and, and you name it. I mean, if you're in technology and media, you're pretty much reading. Um, if you run the company, if you're one of the top executives, if you're a journalist or an analyst in the sector, um, hobbyists or people that just love the area. And as we go in, went into fashion and music and sports, we've seeded those areas with like, let's say, four to 5,000 of the people that run that industry so that we grow that way. And we think that ultimately, if we want to go into every sector, there's twenty five to 50,000 people in each sector that are the influencers, the people that work there that we want to get. So, so the idea is reach the influencers. You have this awesome sort of personal network, yep. and basically you sort of expanded that a little bit, but yeah. not much, right? Redef is a reflection of me, yeah. though I brought in some great people who are curators who are now running with it, and that's why it's not the Jason Hirshhorn business, it's the Redef business. Um, but yeah, I mean, I use my personal network, and a, a lot of it is when, you know, when that email gets into your box, one of the great things about email is that you know, people reach out to you. They want um, your opinion. They want you to see stuff. And certainly as we've gone more into editorial originals, which are very long-form data research pieces about television or media, it's become something, it's, it's really helped our brand in terms of an authority on, this, on the sectors that we're covering. So we'll come back and talk about the business some more and how you're sure. going to make it a business. Let's talk about that network and how, how you built that network. You've got a, a career that goes back to the early 90s yep. in media. Yep. Uh, what was your first media job? So when I was in college, I started a web design firm called Mischief New Media. And uh, I started designing record label sites. Um, and weren't you, know, you weren't you doing something before that? weren't you weren't you like swapping CDs or helping people sell their CDs? So there, uh, yeah, I guess we're gonna go way back. Yeah, so let's go way back. I guess my network started growing up in New York City. I was a club promoter, so was very You're social. A club promoter in high school. A club promoter in high school, very successful. You know, went out this on is the eighties and the nineties. The eighties and the nineties. You know, throwing parties for kids and then you know uh, models and celebrities and stuff. Wait, 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 wait slow down. How how do you become a club promoter in New York? In the 80s and 90s as a um, high school kid. So the story was, I, I had my bar mitzvah at a place called The Saint, um, and it was the old Fillmore East down near St. Mark's Place. And when I was in high school, all the kids would go to a bar called Dorian's. And Which is on the east side, on right? On the east side. And unfortunately, there was a murder out of Dorian's. This is the preppy um, murder, The preppy right? murder. We're going um, way back. Robert Chambers. And pretty much that destroyed nightlife if you were you know, a junior or senior in high school, because you couldn't get into bars, you couldn't get into clubs. So I went back to that club that I had my bar mitzvah at, and I made the, uh, a proposal to them. And I said, I can get you every kid in New York City of a certain age and only give me the club till 12 o'clock. And given that there was no bar, meaning you couldn't sell alcohol, um, we'll split the door. What, what prompts you at age, what, 15, 16, yep. 17 to go, I'm, I'm going to go make a proposal to a club and be a promoter. What's, what's I don't, the, what's I don't the, imp the I don't impulse? Remember, I, mean, I only remember putting on a suit, taking my father's briefcase, which had nothing in it, 
and going down to pitch these guys. I'm, I'm going to guess that maybe you weren't you weren't on the high school basketball team, or or I mean, is this something you do because it's a thing to to sort of set yourself apart from the school in some other way? It wasn't anything like that. I no. mean, I was I was you know fully in the fabric of Horace Mann at the time before I got thrown out, and uh, you know played football and sports, and you know was a, I guess a regular kid. Okay, but, so you weren't a promoter because you couldn't do something else. Yeah, 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 no, 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 and and but there was also money to be made. I mean, the reality is there was there was an opening that I saw in a moment where mm-hmm. it was very hard, and the first night we charged ten dollars a piece to get in. The first night we did seven thousand people, so we're fifteen years old. We just grossed seventy grand in one night. And you split that with the club. And I remember I walked out of the club with a garbage bag of $35,000. So that was basically my intro to club promotion. And what do your parents think about that? When you come oh, home they loved it. I mean, we, got, we, we were in, I'll send you these articles, but we were in the New York Times. We were in you know all sorts of places. Before I was schooled to getting interviewed, I remember saying to one of the reporters, please quote me because I wanted to go to Harvard. And there was, no, there was no shot that I was ever getting even near Harvard. I don't think they would even let me tour the campus. But um, – it was a, you know, it's interesting. It was a great, it was a great lesson for me as we talk about building out my network, which is you'd go out at night and you'd go to parties and clubs and you'd have a network of people that would pass out your invites and you became very social and you understood who was an influencer, who, if you let them in and let them bring their friends, who else would they bring? And, you know, even though we talk about virality and social media and all that kind of stuff now to how you grow your audiences in Redef, because I'm after a certain audience. A lot of it has been hand-to-hand combat. I mean, when we met nine years ago or eight years ago when I started, I started I, – I would meet you and I would yeah. add you to the list. And, uh, you know, I remember – things would come up in conversation. I remember when I started uh, running MySpace and I was at some party with Rupert Murdoch and he's talking to me and my name comes up and then I hear from the background, you're Jason Hirshhorn. Um, it's Barry Diller, and somehow he got it from Rupert. So those connections work, and I think that people forget that business has become impersonal. It's still very important to have some hand-to-hand combat and people see the whites of your eyes when you're building your audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even, even for digital stuff. And uh, even in the conference business, I mean, you're absolutely selling yeah. tickets person-to-person. Uh, person. Yeah. So you're a club promoter. Yep. Um, very often people who are club promoters end up not faring well later on in life. Things flame out. Yep. Um, did you figure out I don't want to be in this business forever, or was this always sort of a temporary thing? I think it was a tiring. It was it was tiring because I wasn't someone who like loved to go out every night, and it was a very social business. And I think when I was around, I was at NYU undergrad at Stern, and I stopped doing it around that time. And I was always very into music, so music was a big part of our clubs. We'd had bands down there, all that kind of stuff. And I always, you know, this is early early nineties, late eighties. I want to run a record label, and that's what I always wanted to do, and I had interned at record labels. Um, and I started, when I was at NYU, I started getting on the internet early, Lynx, you know, Lynx browser on Unix, and would sit in the computer lab. And music, as in many of the movements of the internet, was one of the first big things on right. Usenet and other places. So I talked myself into an internship with Warner on AOL, which was the first record label. You said, on. I'll be your computer guy. Whatever you want me to do. I met them through the internet. And even I didn't even meet the guys for years. And I started building out websites, and I started, you know, um, monitoring their content on. And you, you, AOL. you taught yourself because there was no, you, there was no. Everything was everything was self taught. You know, it's one of the great things about the internet, which is you could find someone to ask a question, and they will answer it. You could look at the source of a web page. Um, you know, in those days, you know, I can say it now, but you know, you'd sit in AOL and in a wares room, and you know, you couldn't afford Photoshop, but somehow you'd find Photoshop in the wares room. And then when I could afford it, I went and bought it. And I was self-taught, and then I built out clients with the record labels that way, and that's how I got into it. So it's the 90s. If you want to get on the internet, it's AOL. Yep. You start building websites, those super 
at the time, a website was incredibly crude, right? Yeah. But no one knew how to do it. There were a handful of people who could, who, who could I, do I it. I used to say, like, I was not uh, – this was before the internet takes off, really, and people who are early in. So if you ever saw the Brady Bunch movie, you know, Mike, Mike Brady's a, an architect, and he's working on a sushi restaurant, a gas station, and the Brady house. And basically, they're all the same house, and one has a sushi sign, and one has uh, a gas station sign. All my websites look the same, except they had the different Apple Mart and stuff. Yeah, no, I remember that era. It was uh, you, I had friends who were not computer people, and all of a sudden, they were website designers. And yep. I said, how'd you learn how to design a website? I don't, I don't really know. I just know how to do more than the guy who's paying me. It was one of those wonderful things, no differently than being a musician or an artist or anything else, where you could literally learn on your own, and there were a, there was a network of people that would help you, because that was the beginnings of... You were using IRC, you were using Usenet, and people were want, they would like to you know answer your question. They weren't shouting at you like they do on Twitter and other places yet. So, so you graduate from NYU, you didn't get kicked out like nope. a horse man. Congratulations. Uh, gra- graduate from NYU. And you um, said I'm going to go into business full time making these. Websites. I had already started the, the the mischief new media while I was in college, and then um, started building out the websites. And uh, at the time, there was um, a company called UBL.com. And it was the ultimate band list, and it was owned by Artist Direct, I think. And uh, I can't remember when they changed their names. And I always was a critic of things. If I saw architecture or, or a business or a product, what could make that better? And I basically, on my free time at night, started building out a music network. And uh, over a couple of years, I built out a music network. And one day, I was sent an email to one of my clients, Sony, at about 4 a.m. in the morning. And they said, what are you doing up? And I said, well, I build this thing at night. This is what I do. Yeah. This is when I work. This is when I work. And um, within 48 hours, they came over to my apartment on 96th Street. I was unshaven in sweatpants. Sounds right. And um, this was around 19, end of 1998. And Sony Music offered to buy what was Mischief New Media because they wanted to have – I was building basically a music portal that had all these different attributes. Right. So the internet is starting to blow up. Yep. Yahoo's gone public. Netscape's yeah. gone public. People yep. were interested in the idea of the internet. Yep. Launches you know, happening at the time, Dave Goldberg and, and, and Bob Roback and all those guys. And, uh, and so Sony comes and you go, great, I'm going to sell it. I'll, Sony I'll comes to my house. They think they're going to an office building. Open up the door. There's computers all over the place. You know, stacks of TV schedules because we had this product. It's your called, apartment. In my apartment yeah. called Rock on TV. I think that literally the look on their faces was priceless. And I think they thought they hit gold, that I didn't know what I was doing. And I remember them saying, like, don't talk to anybody. And the next day at my apartment showed up, like, a, a PlayStation and games and uh, mini discs and, like, everything. So they send you a 1000 bucks worth of electronics. And they basically are treating you like you're a, you're a band. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had grown up in New York City in private school, and I had lots of friends whose parents were people. You went to school with Murdoch's, right? Um, you were mentioning Murdoch's I, James Murdoch and yeah. I went to high school together, yeah. yep. At so you're, you're, you're plugged in. And I call uh, my best friend's uh, father was uh, uh, Mickey Schulhoff, who ran Sony of America. And I showed him the site. Now, he had, he had left Sony. Yeah. And he said, you should call Alan Grubman and Arthur Andersky, who are two of the <laughs> biggest entertainment you know, lawyers in the world. These are the guys who negotiate deals for Billy Joel with Sony. And yeah, they also and, nego- and, and they represent Sony. At the they same were time. the law yeah. firm. And, uh, you know, Alan and Artie, if you know them, probably never were on a computer at the time. I remember I had to send them a web TV. And, uh, and they took over the deal. And within days, they had BMG and Warner and MTV and, and everyone um, really bidding for the company. And uh, all of them wanted to have a, a sort of a music hub. And what was fantastic was over a year we negotiated, and ever since I was a little kid, I knew who Tom Freston was, I knew who Judy McGrath was, I grew up on MTV. This is at MTV's height, 
and I was a student. In the mid-90s. Mid-90s, but also, you know, I remember when MTV launched, and it was a big part of my life, and I, that's where I wanted to go. And uh, they negotiated a deal to sell to Viacom, and on March 5th, 2000, I'll never forget it, I joined uh, uh, Viacom, and I, I was running a site called SonicNet, which was at the time the biggest music site in the world for them. And what I had built with uh, Mischief and Music Station became the the ultimately the tech platform for a lot of those. So things. the idea was it's 2000, the internet, first internet bubbles and, and full stream about to pop. Yep. But the MTV is, is, is a really big deal yeah. at this point still. Mary Beaker's doing the spin out where, where uh, it's called MTVI. But there's a, there's a logical sort of a progression. We go, all right, MTV is a huge deal on TV and we're going to take that power and transfer it over to the internet, and they're going to continue that run. Yeah, I think that MTV had understood that music was starting to move online, and it became less of a thing on the channel, um, at least programmatically, right. because they had become very big and doing long. But form. you were gonna, you were gonna be the sort of guy who brought them to the internet. Well, I, I think Nicholas Butterworth ran SonicNet was already there, and yeah. they were building out assets. We had bought Imagine Radio, which became, you know, was the first interactive radio platform. And I think what they saw in, in us was not only the platform that would be the technical platform for what we do, but also me as a product developer. Wait, so let, let's go back to the to the sale part. Sure, this is a good story. Yep. How much money did you make when you when you sold? I made a lot of money. <laughs> you know, I won't give you numbers, but I did well. And uh, the great seven story, figures, eight figures. Um, yeah. And it's your company, right? It's my company. There's no owners. So you no make a life changing amount of money. Life-changing amount of money. It, one day, I, I basically, you know, I was hand-to-mouth. Um, my dad had lent me some money for the business, but hand-to-mouth. And then the next day, I was, you know, I, I made millions of dollars. And it was... It and was, what do you... So your age... You're what, what age are that? 28 years 28, old. 28, you have millions of dollars. Yep. I'm going to say tens of millions of dollars. It was, we did well. You did well. Yep. What do you do? How do you celebrate? So this is a great story. So the first thing I did was I called my mom. And I said, bring every debt you have, every bill ever, proudest moment of my life ever. And my mom came over to my apartment on 96th Street at the Monterey. <laughs> and uh, I wrote every loan, every college tuition you can imagine to zero and changed her life. And that was fantastic. And you, then cleared, I, you cleared her books. You cleared, well, settle all debts. Cleared her books and then said, whatever you want to do, wherever you want to live, you let me know. And then, and then I went nuts. So, you know, I, I think I had regressed to childhood at that point, and I went on to eBay and I bought 5,000 Matchbox cars. Not $5,000 worth of Matchbox no, cars. No, 5,000 5, Matchbox cars. And then I remember the cars came to the building, and I literally looked at myself in the mirror, and I'm like, you're nuts. And I, I had, the doorman came up, and he helped me bring the boxes down to the gift drive for Christmas. You didn't, uh, you didn't want to go buy a Hamptons house or, or invest in art? or well, Listen, I, I, did, I, did, I did, you know, uh, our friend Quincy Smith and I talk about this a lot, but I bought a lot of sneakers. Yeah. Um, I definitely bought myself a cool car. You did all that and the Matchbox cars. Yep. And then um, in 2001, about, you know, October, November 2001, I, f I bought myself an apartment in Tribeca early on. But I didn't, you know, I didn't go, you know, I didn't want to spend my money and be, you know, without. Yeah. And also remember that deal-wise, I got cash, but I also was having, my, my wealth was going to be tied to a pre-IPO stock in MTVI, which would, M MTV Networks had put all their digital assets in a spin-out company with TCI Music at the time. And the thought was, this is going to be a $4 billion valuation. And I remember weeks before we signed the deal, my lawyer came to me and said, they won't guarantee your stock, meaning if you sell your company to them, it's a gamble as to whether they go public or not. And if they don't, you're left with nothing. And Just I, to cash the game. Yeah, and I remember saying to him, listen, Amazon's at whatever. We're going to be crazy rich. Do the deal. And he looked at me and he goes, you build websites, I do deals. And if you don't listen to me, I'll walk off right now. And he saved my life in that we did not go public. 
Um, the bubble burst in about May of 2000. They called off the IPO, and I was the only guy in that company that walked away with all his cash because he fought for the guarantee. And so, in lieu of the spinoff, that you got more cash and you got more stock in Viacom, or you got more cash. Or I, I got I got a cash payout, and then you know, obviously, as I moved up the the ladder in in Viacom, I became very highly compensated did, there. And did you was, keep any of the Matchbox cars? Um, no, I gave them away to the gift drive Not for kids. Not a single one. No. Because that'd be a good memento to have. Well, listen, I, I loved those things when I was a kid. My mom used to buy them as a treat, and I had some idea that I was going to wallpaper the apartment in Matchbox cars. <laughs> but, you know, I have lots of those different stories. But I think I had written a piece about this a long time ago where what do you do when all of a sudden you hit it? What do you do? Yeah. And uh, I don't think a lot of people talk about that because they're uncomfortable about talking about money, and it can be. Um, but there's also some yeah, very funny I stories. Got, I got one of those stories in my head that I want, I'm trying to figure out how to tell. It doesn't involve Matchbox cars. But, you know, the, the thing about writing my mom to zero is like, you know, I'm not an adult yet, but that was my adult moments. It's very cool. Yeah. Um, hang on one second. We might pay bills in a second. Sure. Of our own. Today's sponsor is Sortable. Sortable isn't your typical ad tech company. They're a company built on data using technology and machine learning to make intelligent decisions. Their ad engine analyzes millions of ad impressions every day, and they're working with all of the major ad networks, including Google, AppNexus, AOL, OpenX, and Amazon, just to name a few. In real time, they analyze users, geography, device types, session depth, layouts, networks, and bids. Using machine learning, their ad engine understands which ad network is going to pay the most for every impression, and of course, make sure those ad networks fill your ad space. Bottom line is that they're working on some really interesting stuff, and they're helping a growing list of web publishers make more money and stop worrying about their ads. These guys started out as publishers, so they know how much work it takes to make money online. Check them out at sortable.com slash recode. Sortable is making ads suck less at sortable.com slash recode. Thanks, Lauren. Today's episode of Recode Media is also brought to you by SoFi. SoFi is transforming the financial world by offering great rates on things like student loan refinancing, personal loans, and mortgages. The process is pretty simple. They look at your financial potential. If there's promise, they back you for life. So when you borrow with SoFi, you get an awesome set of perks, too. You get career services, member happy hours, nationwide networking events, unemployment protection, and even an entrepreneur program, which I'm proud for pronouncing correctly. The idea is SoFi succeeds when their members succeed, so they'll do all they can to help their members out. Learn more about what they can do for you at SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. And we're back. Oh, you just told us a great story about how you got your first break, how you made your money initially yep. selling to MTV. You go to MTV at sort of the, the height of the bubble, bubble bursts. Within months you, of me getting there. But you stay on at MTV because the internet's not going away. They have a huge spin-out MTVI. It's hundreds of people. I get there March of 2000. There's 15,000 people in Times Square looking for NSYNC. We've got a big building downtown on um, 10th Street or 9th Street. And by May, they're dismantling the thing. And, uh, you know, this is my first real job, so I haven't had a job out of college. I've, I'm in my own business alone with me and my sister and, you know, consultants. And um, it was a little scary because you, you look at MTV and you're like, oh, my God, all these people must be in lab coats and they're so smart. And you walk into the building and within 30 minutes you realize it's a freaking miracle anything gets up on TV because <laughs> they're all crazy but brilliant. And um, I remember Judy McGrath and Tom Freston sitting down with me. I don't remember exactly the date. And they said, well, what do you want to do? We think you're – you're going to be something with us, and do you want to run a channel? Do you want to? And I said to them, I remember, I remember saying, I said, you guys, the internet is where it's going to be, and once I establish us in the internet, 
Judy, then I want your job. And then Tom, I want your job. And, uh, and I decided to stay there and I stayed there for six and a half years and really got my education in running a business. So I had never really run people before. And, um, you know, I, and I ultimately ran their entire digital division globally. Um, so that's Nickelodeon and Comedy Central. And we did wonderful things in mobile and early in video. If you remember, MTV Overdrive is one of the first broadband networks um, online. None, um, none of this stuff exists today, right? It's all early and it's sort of been dismantled. Yeah, I mean, any- it's, 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 I mean, there's, we built so many things like music service and other kinds of things. They were merged into Rhapsody or the video platform didn't take the name of Overdrive. Right. I mean, you know. You never so know. What, what did you take away from that experience? What's the, what's the most valuable thing you learned at that sort of six-year internship working at MTV? Couple of things. One is, um, you know, I was very much a crusader. So I would walk in there, and basically, it was like, "Listen, you don't got, you guys don't see it coming, but the internet is going to disrupt this company, and we need to be there. Follow me. Follow me, and I'm right, and you're wrong. Yeah. That's not the way to get people on your side. So I think um, a little humility about how do you win, and how you bring people along with you, and how you bring other ideas in, and then at the at how, the how end, do you, how do you do it if it's not pointing and, and yelling? Come on. Because you have to understand what people's motivations are. People don't like to be afraid. So, you, and you also have to understand they're making eight billion a year, and you're talking about stuff that has no revenue yet. And MTV forgot, in in some cases, that they were always the trend magnifier. They saw things early and they brought it to the world. I think if there was any mistake that was made internally, was there was a misunderstanding that if you were the trend magnifier in the past, now you need to be the platform where the audience tells what's each other what's cool. And that's really where where yeah, MTV that's left I mean, out. that's got to be terrifying. I think still today, if you're a media company, you're used to being the people who sort of filter things and then broadcast them yeah. and distribute them, and being kingmakers and saying, "All right, we we no longer have that ability, or, or we're sharing that ability with our audience." Yeah, obviously, things have been so fragmented in media that uh, a company like uh, Viacom or anything they control less. But that just means that you need to change your tools and, and change your strategies and. Uh, you and know, by the way, you're making $8 billion a year, so you can use some of those resources to build these things out if you want. Exactly. I mean, listen, the, the story, I don't care if you're in healthcare, if you're in media, anything else, the stories of disruption are the same, which is you do it to yourself or you get it done. And there's no such thing as, you know, uh, what I also learned about, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. If you're going to go into OTT and you're going to be a big player there, that means you're going to have to, in some way, take less from your current revenue stream in order to move into that area. There right, this isn't is, this a is balance. This is the classic conflict that every company has. Every how, company. How do we disrupt ourselves? We, well, we don't really want to disrupt ourselves yep. quite yet. We'll say we do, but we don't want yeah. to. Yeah. And, and listen, you have guys like Reed Hastings and Netflix who understood that about uh, the streaming service versus DVD. And by the way, there's no, there's no stupid people at these companies. They are more caught in the revenue that they have and quarterly estimates if they are um, in, in revenue, if they're a publicly traded company. But those were the kinds of things. And then at the end of the day, I think my personality is, is someone who likes to start businesses and move with them. And sometimes I've been early, earlier than the market would allow. And one of the good things if you're in a Viacom or a News Corp is they have the cash to let you – they can let you go. So one of the great things about working at News Corp when I was running MySpace is Rupert gave us rope. I mean, we tried to save it and we couldn't, but it, News Corp wasn't the problem. They were funding us. As management changes were made at MTV, it, it just became too political of a place for me. And ultimately, the reason that I left was beyond a lot of the politics and a little infighting into my fifth or sixth year was I got to see everything. So one of the great things about MTV that I will never, never forget is I met the world there. I was a precocious kid and I had a mouth and I was social and I knew how to meet people and talk them into things. But 
you're meeting Steve Jobs, you're meeting Bill Gates, you're meeting basically everyone I do business with today. And a lot of the people that run Maker or Vivo or whatever it is, were all people we came up together. And that was really my passport. And one day, someone came into my office and showed me a sling box. And uh, Describe a sling box. A sling box is a, it was a place shifting device that you attach to your cable box and you were allowed to watch your television in the same form with the same remote on your phone and on your laptop so or your computer. My, my home's in New York, but I'm in LA. I can watch my cable box. I can watch TV yeah. on my phone. Why it seems like a, a no shit idea today. Yeah. Revolutionary at the time. Revolutionary at the time. It's still the only real TV everywhere product with every channel that you pay for. So I had access to new ideas and, and that's ultimately how I plotted the next stage of my career. And there was a lot in between there. You know, we had a failed attempt for MySpace. And right, you wanted to buy MySpace. Tom Freston tried to buy it. Yeah. And, and, um, Murdoch got it instead. In, in 2004, Nick Lehman, um, who was my partner at MTV and, and a successful uh, media executive, came into my office and said, um, we have a video inventory problem. And uh, there's this site called MySpace. They do something called social networking, which I did not know what it was. And they had a big Laguna Beach, which was one of our show's uh, community on. And we should go talk to them. And I flew out to go see Krista Wolf and, and Tom. And, uh, you know, very early I wanted to buy MySpace. That was the answer for me in terms of telling the audience, telling each other what's cool with us as the backbone of the platform. We probably could have gotten it for $40 million at first. And um, it was a long, arduous process of ultimately making a bid for the company because Viacom was splitting into CBS and Viacom. Right. Tom would run one division, Leslie Moonvest would run the other. And um, they did not have control over whether an acquisition was okay. Viacom still did until the companies were split. And uh, it was a very frustrating process and um, we lost it to Rupert. Over a weekend. Yeah, I mean, we, right? we were to come in on a Monday morning and fax our bids in, fax them, literally. And uh, I came in 7 a.m. in the Judy McGrath's office to fax it and I was told that Rupert had made an exploding offer the night before, less than we would have paid. And uh, it was gone. And uh, I went freaking crazy. And, um, you know, I don't want to get into all the names and everything, but a lot of the people that are still there running the company were some of the people that were against going after it or making it more expensive for Rupert. And uh, certainly when I ended up running MySpace, um, without doing too much due diligence on the state of MySpace at the time, a lot of it was a chip on my shoulder on not yeah. having gotten it after doing all that I want to work. get to that one minute. So explain Slingbox and what you did there. Sure. You've, you've had multiple interesting jobs. I want to try to touch each one of them. At least yeah, briefly. so Slingbox to me was, you know, I was traveling all over the world for MTV networks. Um, you know, we had, you know, channels and sites in 117 countries, and I would come home on a Friday night, and I'd look at my DVR. As you know, I am a television fanatic. And I'd be like, I'm not going out for a week. I got so much on my TV. And the idea that you had to go home to watch your television was an antiquated notion. So I met at CES one year the founder, Blake Krikorian, who's now one of my best friends. And um, you know he believed that the world was going into video and the, we needed to be anywhere that the on-ramp was. And um, there was a fortune to be made in the sloth of the cable companies because they thought- this of, is something the cable guys should have built themselves, still should build today. The, the idea of Slingbox wasn't genius. The timing was genius. Um, and uh, Comcast and Time Warner, whoever it was at the time, why should you have to, if it would deal with them, then I want to watch it on my computer. That's great. So you go, you go to work for Blake. Yep. He builds the box and you build a, so a I, related I, service, So I start right? something called the Sling Entertainment Group, our media group, I can't remember. Um, and I was president and uh, we, not, we took over basically all the user experience stuff having to do with the Slingbox software. But we also built what became the first TV Everywhere site. So 
the idea would be you would watch your Slingbox on the web, but then if you also wanted to watch a follow-on VOD program, we would have it for you. Right, and it was, it was similar to Hulu, except the idea was Hulu. You didn't have to, at the time... Yeah, so Hulu, Hulu was something I was involved with very early in that we MTV Networks and Fox were originally going to be the first two partners. And even when I left MTV, the idea was that maybe I would go to what became Hulu. Viacom dropped out of that, and uh, we had had an early deal with what became Hulu for Sling. And then when um, NBC and everybody else got involved and Hulu was going to be a destination, not a rights vehicle, um, they sort of canceled the idea of working with Sling. And then when we got bought by Dish, um, Slingbox gets sold to Dish Network, EchoStar. Right. And now we have tremendous leverage in terms of getting content because we spend you know, probably more than anybody else. And again, that was a successful deal as well, right? That, I think there's a reported price of $380 million. $380 million and a you know, nice earn out as well. Um, so so you, was your thought, all right, I'm going to go work for Charlie Ergen and Dish, or do you think I'm, I'm not going to do that? I'm going to sell the company and move on. Blake, you know, it's interesting. You know, we really did want to sell to a cable company. And um, it wasn't like we were looking to, but in the, the Series B, we took in Liberty Media, who owned DirecTV, and Echo Star that owned Dish at the time. And the idea was, and this is, you know, advice for anyone that takes in strategics, never take in one, because um, you want them battling against one another. And, um, the idea was that you had an install base of millions and millions of boxes. And we built a box out because no one would work with us. Everyone wanted to sue us into oblivion. So the box was a means to an end, but we really were a software and an interface company. And uh, when Charlie Ergen decided to, to split out the, the assets of Dish and EchoStar, EchoStar being their technology unit, a great story for them was to spin it out. You buy Slingbox as the innovative company inside the, the unit, and then you would not only license the Sling technology, but you would integrate the Sling technology into 19 million set-top boxes that Dish had had at the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think that we, we got a kick out of Charlie. I mean, he is the, to this day, I would say probably the sharpest, smartest guy I've ever worked with in media or anything. And you know a lot of smart guys. He's famously a smart guy, famously a, a tough negotiator, poker player, et cetera. Sure. Doesn't seem like he'd be a barrel of laughs to work for. I interviewed him once on stage. He's, yeah, I said, you know, there was a Business Week story that you're the most hated boss in America. And I think he kind of liked that idea. He's, he's, he's cheap and sort of difficult. Did you know that going in? I didn't know Charlie other than to meet him once or twice beforehand, um, and we worked with some of the people on negotiating the deal, not necessarily Charlie directly until the end. I Guys like that are entertainment for me. So I like Charlie Ergen a lot, and I actually think he's likable if you don't – if you can get past the veneer of you think that he's cheap or – listen, he is someone who cares about not being frivolous. It's not something that you see in media, certainly at the time. So Charlie would look at every check over 20000 in the company, and this has got the guy's the richest guy in media at the time. And you'd go to Dish, and you'd get your $4 voucher for lunch. But Blake and I have a sense of humor, and we also understood – we weren't afraid of Charlie. And there were a lot of people who had come up with Charlie, and it was Charlie's company, and they did what Charlie said. You know, We were people who had mouths, and we had a thought on how the future was. And I remember Charlie coming up to me once. We were at the Foursquare conference, and he had just gotten off stage fighting with someone. This is a big deal, investment yeah. bank, private conference in New York. Correct. And I, I had been pressuring Charlie to include rights for us in one of his big deals um, with one of the networks. And that's a trait that I had had at the time also, which is I don't care about the other parts of the business. This is the business that I run. And whatever issues you have, that's fine. But like you got to get us the rights. Yeah. And I remember him taking me aside and he said, listen, I don't hear it a lot but I want you to keep pushing me at all times. And Blake and I did keep pushing him. 
ultimately it wasn't the place for us. We had a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a personal falling out, but like a more of like how you run a business. And remember that Charlie's in Denver. He's a cable guy. He runs his business a certain way, and we're dealing with a different culture. You're a smart-ass New Yorker who likes the internet. But also, you know, you're in the Valley at Slingbox, yeah. and you're dealing with developers and stuff. And I remember, you know, I remember that the first day we sold the company, and Charlie came in to talk to us. And, you know, he said some outrageous shit in front of the staff that Blake and I literally were like, how are we ever going to explain this? Like, you know, he comes in the first day, and he's like, listen, spoke to my friend Carl Rove. And he says, all you people are lucky to have jobs, that the economy's going into the shitter or whatever. So, you know, if you're in a Silicon Valley company and the first shit you say is Carl Rove, you know, but like we we got a kick out of it. And then, you know, little things like he wasn't a big believer in the best health package and and on all things. Like that doesn't make him – he is not hated to me. He's a very likable guy. He's just not putting a yoga room in your workplace. He's not putting a yoga room. And Charlie would tell you. He'd be like, when I started Dish, I walked up the hill both ways in the snow and I carried the big satellite on the back of my – you know, he he really did do it. I mean he is one of the great – great stories in the history of media in terms of how he built a satellite business. And we're talking about not satellite dishes on the roof. We're talking about those big satellite dishes that are bigger than a car right. in the early days. So, so, so you leave that company yep. and you go to work for another mogul, Rupert Murdoch, yep. to go fix MySpace. At the time you're brought in to fix MySpace, it, it needs fixing. It is already broken, right? News Corp's bought it. Was a hot property at the time you you're brought in. It's already being eclipsed by Facebook. What yeah, was, so I, I lost thinking? I lost touch with MySpace you know while I was at Sling because we were on such a mission, and then we had an earnout and we left after the earnout, and I was exhausted. I mean, Sling was really like a crusade, and um, you're dealing with not only building out what you believe to be a great technology, but you're also you're trying to make sure that you don't get sued. And we were very new technology, and most people were trying to sue us. And one side story I'll tell you, which is funny, is one of the reasons we didn't get sued was Blake and I came up with an idea where we basically sent 800 sling boxes to everyone in media entertainment, from talent to to others, and then had the Geek Squad come and install them. And that was the beginning. It was something I learned, which is you have to choose your own narrative. Don't let people choose your narrative for you that we're stealing and all this kind of stuff. So I leave. I'm exhausted. I decide to go down to Miami for a couple of months to rest. And within literally two weeks of me, um, you know, sitting on the beach, I get a call from Jim Citrin, who is um, a big uh, placement person yeah. at, at yeah. Spencer Stewart, headhunter to the stars. And he says Rupert would like to meet you. And even knowing James and, and Lachlan and, and you, the family, you, you grew up with some Murdochs. But yep. had you met Rupert before? Um, I had. I don't. Maybe when I was a little kid, but uh-huh. I had not met him. Um, he knew who I was because him and Tom Freston were friendly. Tom called me and said Rupert's called me about you. He's probably going to give you a ring. And he had just bought the Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones, and I went down to um, near my house, down to the office, and I sat with him for like two and a half hours, and and we talked about MySpace, and I I told him what I thought had gone wrong from the outside. I told him where I where I thought the the product should go, and I didn't really want a job, and then it just spiraled, and uh, that's hard was, to say no to Rupert Murdoch. That was February two thousand and nine. Then I, I didn't know he was. He wanted someone to run digital for News Corp at the time, but also MySpace. I thought I was in the running for the News Corp job. I go back to LA, wake up one morning. Um, I'm out there just visiting my family, and uh, I see John Miller, my friend, gets the chief digital officer. So I, I have a sigh of relief. I'm like, oh god, I'm not going to have to have this conversation. And then Rupert and John call me in the morning and say we'd like to talk to you about MySpace. And uh, about a week later, we had a secret meeting in the back room of the Four Seasons Hotel um, with Mike Jones, 
um, who's now the head of science, big uh -huh. incubator in LA, and um, John Miller and Owen Van Atta, who is uh, formerly the COO of Facebook. And they had this idea to put together, you know, what is dubbed the, certainly not the dream team, but um, <laughs> some sort of team. So the idea was you, Owen Van Atta, yeah. and Mike Jones would all run MySpace together. Well, Owen would be CEO, I would be president, Mike would be COO, right. um, I would run the forward-facing stuff, product, marketing, press, uh -huh. Mike would be you know, the, uh, the operations, and Owen would be the CEO. So again, from the outside, yep. you, you have a, a declining internet asset. No one ever has figured out how to turn around a declining internet Which, asset. Which, by the way, you know, because this is very secret, we're not allowed to go in there and kick the tires, right. and but, you know, it's uncomfortable for me, because I know Chris really well. But you can see from the outside, this thing is, is going down, right? You don't have to get that far. I mean, yeah, put you, this what, way, what, I'm what, not smart and I could see it. I think the MySpace guys had misread the momentum of Facebook because it was an East Coast thing really in schools at first when I first met them. But right, at, MySpace was cool and had bands. Yeah, and at 2009, Facebook is executing product at a level that I've not seen ever and the friends are leaving. So MySpace, the numbers are not going down necessarily because I think that they were you know, sending out emails and still getting people to engage. But the real story was once we got right. in there was social networking is all about engagement. So you, so you couldn't see how bad it was from the outside? No, within, within two weeks of, I forget what day in April we joined. Within 48 hours, I was basically crying at my desk to Mike Jones, like, what the hell have I just done? Because we, we really went in there. I had such a chip on my shoulder, and I felt I knew what to do with MySpace. Because this was the company you wanted to buy five years ago. For, for, you know, for MySpace, that I, I literally, I, I went back and forth for a couple of days, and then Owen really talked me into joining. And at the time... News Corp wanted me to have a dual role. They wanted me to be chief product officer of News Corp and help all their brands, but also build out the plan for MySpace. And um, within two weeks, Mike and I had delved um, deep into the data and we could see what the problem was, which was people coming to MySpace an average of, I think, one and a half times a month where you know we're hearing something like eight to 10 times a day for Facebook. And that was the story. And my theory very early on to Owen was, I believe we've lost we will not beat Facebook in what is considered the bedrock of social networking, which is what are you up to in your friends? So within a couple of weeks, you're like, this is, it's broken. It's, we know it's broken we, and not we, fixable. We, we know it's broken. No, no, I don't think it's not fixable. The idea that Mike and I came up with was the way our angle, and this is before like, our angle was it's not what you're up to, it's what you're into. So putting people together via the fact that they like the same music or movies or you know, basically using media to be the connector and also going anti-Facebook, which is you let your freak flag fly, meaning it, you, you didn't have to have your own identity necessarily. You could have the crazy page um, with a little improvement. Yeah. And um, you know that, I think, was, was hard for Owen at the time maybe to swallow because he was coming off of Facebook. I don't know if there was a little ego involvement there or he really believed it. But that was a lot of the, the tension early on was around where the direction was. And, you know, as, as people always tell you in, in management advice, you know, what you don't do is as important as what you do do. And I think it was okay. The other thing is that when you're in a media company, Twitter's going through this right now. We talk about narrative with the Slingbox. You have to make your own narrative. And if everyone's comparing you to – you're right. losing the Facebook. Every day there was a story about Facebook growing, oh. you guys shrinking, and, and then a story about every day there was someone leaving. MySpace. Someone leaving. And listen, we cleaned house a lot. And there was a lot of talent at MySpace, but MySpace had grown. It was there was 1,900 employees. We had just taken 30 million dollars worth of space in LA. You know, News Corp wanted cuts quickly, but it was one of those things where you learn when you've grown for the sake of growing, 
not much breaks when you downsize sometimes. You so, realize that you're over, overbuilt. So you, you brought in to fix a consumer-facing internet company. Yep. Priceline aside, I think they're a different company. No one's ever done this before. Yep. People are trying to do it now with Twitter. Yeah. People are trying to do it with Yahoo. Yeah. And that, by the way, is probably why I took the job, which is like that was my Achilles heel, which is you're telling me no one's ever done right. it before. It's not possible. Tim Armstrong tried to do it at AOL. Yep. Sort of. Yeah, listen, I mean, I'll give him some credit there. Yeah. But I mean, you, you can get to a better financial outcome, but yep. it seems like once consumers say, I'm done with this internet property, yep. they're done. They're not coming back. Do you think there's any, I mean, do you think there's any way to do this task, whether it was at MySpace or it's at Yahoo today or AOL or Twitter? I think it's very, very hard. I'll say this, that you know, a lot of the problems that were, were found out when we got there, other than through the data, was the technical infrastructure was a real problem. Our ability to compete based on coding and releasing and just pushing stuff live was hampered. We were on an antiquated platform. I used to say, like, if you wanted to build an NBA team, you wouldn't go to a pygmy colony. You know, we're, <laughs> we're, it's 2009, we're on .NET Microsoft platform, and we're in Beverly Hills. And LA is a tech hub now, and it's really becoming something, but it wasn't then. And we had, a, we had a great group of very smart people who have gone on to run tech in LA, but we were hampered by that situation. And then I do think it is almost, it is a Herculean task to get over the negative brand stuff. And as I was going through a marketing plan and a positioning plan, a lot of that was to embrace it. Yeah. So you know, if, if, if Facebook was the nice house with the white picket fence, we were Animal House. And, um, and to play into that a little and to make fun of it. I mean, I love this idea that when, when you're a brand that has issues that aren't moral issues or ethical issues, you embrace or you deal with it publicly. You own it. You own it and you make fun of it a little to sort of get away from some of that thought. What was your advice to you? Do you think there's a Yahoo playbook there? I think the Yahoo situation is quite different in that they have this massive site with still a lot of traffic. And I don't think it's anywhere near the MySpace issue. They, they lack direction and they lack a meaning to their audience, but they are a utility. Right. I think where Yahoo has failed is if there's two rowboats and you've got a leg in each rowboat, you're going to fall in the middle. And when Terry Semmel was running Yahoo, they were on their – when I was running MTV Network's business and Dave Goldberg was running a lot of the media stuff at Yahoo, I would sit in Dave's office and I literally – and I love Dave Goldberg dearly – but I, I was enamored with the assets that he had. I mean, any media company would look at Yahoo. They were number one in finance, number one in movies, number one in music, every category, sports. But you had, a, you had a, uh, from a size of an employee base, developers who believed that it was either media or tech. Right. Whereas I, bought, I thought that if you were going to be a media-focused company, you need to be tech-powered. And ultimately, I think that Yahoo has failed from a focus point of view and from – I just don't believe that the majority of their employees ever bought into media – Terry did oh, They cycle through it, right? They get into media, they get out of it, then they get back into it. It's unbelievable what they, they've gone back and forth. And right now, not, you know, again, I always say, like, maybe I'm too close to these things to realize what actually happens. But I don't know what, what's going on at Yahoo. I don't know what they do. I hear about a product announcement or these kinds of things. But they, they've also never been good about taking the places where they have the traffic, fantasy, mail, other kinds of things, and then funneling it into other places. They had so many real issues that kept them from being great. And then they miss social completely. And um, it's just not the same as MySpace, which is MySpace had a real, real poor product. It wasn't working. We couldn't innovate because we couldn't publish the way we needed to publish. So and that was hampered. Ultimately, it doesn't work. You get out. Ultimately, they sell it off for like a bag of chips. Yep. It still exists. I was already way. gone for over a year You're when gone. they sold. Yep. 
you're creating this newsletter we were talking about at the beginning. Yep. Um, was your thought, I'm going to turn this into a business right away, or I'm going to do something else and I'll keep doing this as a sidelight? I did not want to work. So when I left my space, I finally took time off, which I never really did in, in the prior 10 years. And uh, I went and traveled around the world, which was really a wonderful thing because honestly, after my space, my head was mush. I literally couldn't put two words together. I right, mean, imagine, you got beat up behind the scenes. You got beat up in public. Yeah. I mean, imagine opening up your door in the morning and there's a line of people who are coming in to complain. And then when I left my space, I was still very close with News Corp. I still worked with them. I still did some other consulting, but I needed time off. And then um, my mother got sick in uh, 2012, um, cancer. And I went out to LA to take care of her. And that was a very rough process. I mean, seeing anyone die is not uh, is not fun, obviously. And when you're going through chemo and all that kind of stuff. And I think after she passed away in February 2014, the idea in my head was like, I need an outlet and I should start a company. And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do on a business model, but I thought I had something with Redef. I thought discovery was a real issue. And um, I throw uh, with um, some friends, David Unn and Quincy Smith, uh, a dinner every year in, in CES. Yeah, and, I've never been invited. Yep. Uh, well, there's no journalists allowed, but it's not. It's I'm not sorry, because it's of my you. job. It's my job. Uh, I understand that it's not a prejudice. Uh, and you know, people in the room basically said to me, "Hey, what are you doing?" And I said, "I think I'm going to start this company." And then you know, well, we raised the money in about a day and a half, which was a note because you have a network. Because I have a network, and they were people who were fans, some VCs, some individuals, and then that's where it started. And so you're building it along, uh, you're, you're ramping up, we've talked to you, we're going to create a subscription product. Yep. Last summer you sent out a note saying, I'm going in for quadruple bypass yeah. surgery. Yeah. So in July, uh, I have not been feeling well for a couple of years, and I think I attributed to, like, listen, I wasn't eating well, I was overweight, I, I had type 2 diabetes, and I think the what I went through with my mom just took every ounce of, you know, sort of health out of me. And... Um, there were, if I look back now, it was very obvious, but there were moments where I wasn't feeling well. In May of uh, 2015, um, my friend David Goldberg died, and uh, it was shocking to me. Um, knowing Goldie for, for a long, long time, and um, you know, he wasn't the guy that was going to have problems. He was the smart one. He was the, 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 the careful one. Um, and uh, that made me go to see the doctor. And I went and got a stress test, and it was a rudimentary stress test, and it said I was basically okay. And then uh, June and July, I was not feeling well in New York City. It's very hot here. I was on my way to Aspen for a wedding and to do some hiking. I wanted to jumpstart my my health, and I start. I went to go see a doctor in L.A. I remember you sent out a tweet, because I went back and looked afterwards. It's like, I'm looking for what the, the right kind of Fitbit or right kind of wristband. Yeah, I mean, I, I literally was like, I have to do this. And um, I went to LA and uh, went to go see a doctor I was seeing about weight loss and, and my diabetes. And he looked at me and he said, I have a hunch. You have to go in right this minute to get a stress test, what's it called, a nuclear stress test. And I said, well, I'm going to Aspen on Thursday. I'll come back Monday and I'll do it. And he's like, he literally pulled me by my collar. He goes, you're going in right now. And I went in that morning um, around 8 a.m., 9 a.m., and they came out at 11 and they said, you have massive coronary disease. And they handed me a nitroglycerin pill and said, if you have a heart attack, you have to take this. And I was, I was shocked. You're how old? Um, 44 years old. I'm completely in shock. I'm sitting there alone in LA, not where I live. And, uh, and I walked out of the office and I went to have coffee with my friend that I had had scheduled beforehand. I was literally walking around Beverly Hills in a daze. And then I went back at four o'clock 
and um, you know, the beginning of my trials with healthcare became. And I remember, yeah, I had not, I had a falling out with my sister, and I had not spoken to her for a while. And the doctor wouldn't let me tape the session for legal reasons, which annoyed the the crap out of me. And he said, "Do you have anyone to go through this with you?" And I, it was a sad moment because I didn't. I'm 44. I've worked all these years. I don't have a family. And I called my friend Blake, you know, from Sling, and he came down and started going to the doctors with me. And uh, over the next couple of days. I decided not to do order stents, which basically open up your vessels, um, and to begin the improvement of my life by getting the surgery. At the end of the day, when more tests were done, there was no question I had to because I had so many blockages. And then on August uh, 17th, I went in for the surgery. And the day before was morbid because I didn't think I was going to make it. I'm sitting in a lawyer's office rewriting my will because new nieces and nephews had been born since my mom passed. And... And, uh, you know, deciding what would happen to the company if I die and the employees. And then they tell you your operation's at 12 tomorrow and I get up early and, uh, you know, I'm doing read F and I'm going to send a note out. And then they call me at 8 a.m. and they say they want to go now, um, which is, you know, you're not ready to go now. And uh, I had to write a, a, a letter to my audience because I have a, per- you know, I, I feel I have a personal relationship with them. That's part of the brand. Yeah, you're, you're in the inbox every day, yep. usually. In the inbox every day usually, and and uh, but I also you know share personal stuff, and I think that's part of the things that the audience you know drive onto. And then twelve o'clock, you're going down the hall, and then you know you wake up hours later. And uh, I remember seeing Blake and my sister in front of me, and uh, I had survived the operation and was you know uh, very very excited. And I, I think I published within three days in the hospital. You know the sickness was still there. And uh, unfortunately, about two or three weeks after the surgery, things went really bad. Were, quadruple surgery is usually, bypass surgery is about as bad as it gets normally. But then it got worse. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say this. I mean, obviously, the idea of the surgery is bad, but you're asleep. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing what they do these days. And, you know, you wake up and you have a line in your chest and there's no stitches you can see. And uh, I was um, recuperating at, at, at um, a friend's house. And I looked at my chest about two and a half weeks later and it looked infected or it looked like it wasn't healing. And I, you know, they don't want you coming in for like three weeks. And I called the doctor. I said, I'm coming in. They're like, nothing's wrong with you. And they you. think said, you're being a hypochondriac yeah, complainer. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't take suggestions when it comes to my <laughs> life. So, uh, so I, I just, I pushed in and, uh, you know, listen, I'm a pretty forward guy, but I was docile before the operation because I was in shock and thankful, but docile afterwards. And um, literally, I went into the doctor's, um, you know, checkup room. You don't have any feeling in your chest for about a year if you even get it back. Took off my shirt. He said, yeah, it looks a little irritated. Let me clean it up. You know, cleaning up to me means hydrogen peroxide or alcohol yeah. or something. And I looked up at the ceiling because I didn't want to see it. I'm a bit of a wimp about those things. You know, I'd sooner, you know. Yeah, I'm kind of um, wincing just hearing this story. Dude, I, I'd sooner take out a terrorist on a plane with my pinky than I would, you know, look at my open <laughs> chest. And um, the doctor said, look down. And he had cut the entire incision open. And I had, um, you know, a 10 by 6 hole in my chest down to my sternum, you know, hanging out, you know, uh, blood. That's not supposed to be there. Not supposed to be there. And I I was in shock. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that the doctor opened up my chest without telling me. But that, and then he said to me, you got to put wet to dry dressings in your chest. I said, me? And I'm thinking to myself, these guys just sent a half a million dollar bill for a heart surgery, and they're telling me to put wet gauze in my chest, which is like what they did to Kevin Costner's foot in Dances with Wolves. Just wad up some stuff and stick it in your body. And then the next two weeks was thinking about that only every day, the two times a day I needed to change the dressing. That didn't work. Then they hooked me up to a vacuum machine where I walk around L.A. with a backpack with a vacuum in it, a tube in my chest sucking all the air out. That didn't work. 
And then I went crazy. And um, I went nuts on the hospital. I basically said, you don't know what you're doing. I realized that you know, someone had taken me aside and said, the hospital did the operation. Your life saved. They don't know what to do for you now. And you have to take control of this. And when you have heart surgery, you're supposed to be resting and exercising a little. And now all of a sudden, I have to become a quarterback to figure out how am I going to get my chest closed. And um, through Redef and writing about it, people reached out and I triangulated a lot of information. Because you, you you shared a lot. You're an overshare. You, you, yep. You're an angry tweeter yep. uh, when someone displeases also, you. I, I also love things. And, but, and yeah, but there was a lot. I mean, a steady stream of, of stuff, complaints about your health. And frankly, I kind of tuned it out. I'm like, all right, Jason's yep. cranky, but it'll get yep. better. But there was actually a point to it. You actually got your readers and friends actually sent you advice because of the complaining you did. Listen, one of the one of the things when you write about personal stuff on the internet, and it's from the early days of the internet, is that you can find the doppelganger. You can find the person that's going through something similar or has with you. So writing about it was as much of a catharsis for me in terms of dealing with what had happened, what I did to myself. I mean, this wasn't hereditary necessarily. This was something I had done to myself. So writing about it was cathartic, and getting the feedback of people supporting to you was actually very helpful but I was – you have someone who I'm knowledgeable about certain things, but I'm not knowledgeable about healthcare or the hospital system or the heart. And now all of a sudden I'm in real trouble. Having an open wound in your chest like that is way more dangerous than the surgery. You get staph infection in there and it's a 50% death rate. So I know that our audience is eclectic. And I did write about it with – you know I didn't tell, tell everything. And then people reached out with ideas. And those ideas led to a doctor that basically saved me who is a, a wound care guy that trained at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, which is the best heart place in the world. Um, the technology of hyperbaric oxygen chambers, which saturate your body with oxygen to such high levels that you recuperate better. And then IV drips with proteins and other kinds of things. And these were all things that weren't covered by healthcare and the hospital never even mentioned to me and scoffed. And yet at the same time, they saved my life. Normally, you don't think of crowdsourcing healthcare to the internet as being a, a good way to approach things. Crowdsourcing anything on the internet is, I think, usually a positive thing. You see these things about you know cancer DNA strands and all these other kinds of things. These puzzles being solved yeah. in days. Yeah, it my was, instinct is that's where you get the worst information because there's plenty of people with opinions but very little knowledge. The way that I took it in was I got lots of information. There were some people that I had known from my mom's cancer battle that happened to be wound care people. And then you triangulate the middles. So you've heard this name a couple of times. You've heard this therapy a couple of times. And then you have to do your own research. And different when my mom was dying was that I was the quarterback. So she knew she wanted to know certain things but not everything. But I had to know everything. And you have to become not an expert but you have to become learned quickly. I had to do that while I was also recuperating, and it worked. Um, and I have to say it was a very frustrating process because I had every advantage. I have money. I had a platform. I had connections at Cedar sinai in, in L.A., people on the board that were shepherding me through, and I fell through the cracks. If you're going to be sick, be Jason Hirshhorn, right? Rich, connected, resources, time. Yeah, and that's unfair. And when I sat in there to get checkups every day and I see the people that weren't going to speak up to the doctor – I mean, when you, ha when you have heart surgery these days, it's so messed up, Peter, it's unbelievable. Going in and getting checkups is like a Justin Bieber meet and greet. You walk in, you, st you stand in a room with people you don't know who ask you what medication you're on. They usually get it wrong. Then one of the doctor's uh, assistants comes in. There's like, like a clown car. There's 80 of them. And you meet with a different one every time. They're reading about you in a computer, so they don't really know you. And then the doctor, who's Justin Bieber, comes in for two minutes. He takes his photo or looks at you for a second and walks out. 
And when you're living through a catastrophe like this, all you think about 24-7 is this, yeah. whereas they're coming in for their picture and then they walk you're out. On a, you're on a line. And I went crazy and I, and I started to use my network to find out a solution and it did work. But then also when I was out of danger and I was in real danger for many months, I called Cedars and I said, I wanna meet with your entire senior team. I'm gonna give you some constructive feedback some business feedback, and really based on my, my history in the media and technology businesses. They're like, great, great, can't, can't wait to hear your advice. I met with three of the top people in the hospital. They met you? They met with me, and uh, you know, I listen, I think they knew that I possibly would write about them, who uh -huh. knows, but that wasn't what this was about. It was really about, these guys saved my life, and I'm actually traumatized by the care that I got, and I buy 90% of everything I buy off of Amazon, and they are an end-to-end -end solution, they're a wonderful company, and yet I spent $75,000 or more closing work that they did. And I didn't do it at Cedars. And I wanted to tell them what my experience was like. And I said, your doctor opened up my chest while I'm sitting on a chair without talking to me. I'm not a cadaver. Communication and expectation are a big part of this. And I said, I've sat with you guys and I've been with them for an hour and I heard three things. That's not the way we do things. There's no money in that. And uh, we tried that and it didn't work. Sounds like a media company. Dude, I've been in the film business. I've been in the TV business, the music business, the internet business. And anytime I hear those three things, you better short that stock. Um, they sound like a record label, as I, I mentioned before, 1995. And I said, you know, guys, you don't know anything about me, but I, I have this platform and I've written about this and I've gotten thousands of emails. And um, some were from the audience saying, get well soon, we want you back. But they also told me their hospital stories, and everyone has a hospital story, and they're not good. So, Jason. Yep. It seems like you shouldn't be writing about media. It seems like you should be writing a healthcare newsletter. Well, health health redef is on the docket. It's coming. And then I get emails from VCs saying we think there's a huge opportunity. And as an aside, I had just gone. To, I don't know if you ever heard of Singularity University. I had gone to Singularity University, um, which is about new technologies in the future, and we talked about preventative care. So the flow into a hospital is going to be way less. On the other end, you're getting operations these days in doctor's offices. And I said, guys, you guys are done basically in 10 years. I really think your business is over. Um, and I think you treat symptoms, not people. And the CEO jumped out of his seat and he said, how do all your friends in the Valley think they're gonna make money? And I said, I can tell by the tone of your voice that you think I'm naive and my friends are naive, but naivete is the number one competitive advantage. People at Facebook, Airbnb, Uber, those companies don't start if you logically think about whether you could build them or not. I like this crusading Jason Hirshhorn. Yeah. This is gonna, we're gonna have to do a part two here. You have set the record. You've doubled our length of our, our previous longest podcast. But I mean, it's like only five minutes in. What are you talking about? I, I haven't know, even gotten I know. to it yet. We'll do, we'll do parts four, five, six down the road. I'm excited. I gotta talk to my boss in a couple minutes, so we gotta go. Jason, so glad you're here. So Good glad to you're see back. you, dude. And look so out for Health Redef. It's a real issue. It's gonna be a place of innovation. And as my friend Casey Wasserman, to paraphrase him, health is the new wealth. I actually think that that's going to be the biggest business in the world and the people that are the incumbents today are not going to be there and you cover that stuff all the time. We'll come right back to it. Thanks, guys. Cool. Uh, if you enjoyed listening to this as much as I did conducting it, and really, this stuff is so much fun. I hope you like it. Go find us on iTunes, subscribe, review. You give us five stars, it's even better. And if you like that, there's more from Recode. The Kara Swisher has Recode Decode. Lauren Good from The Verge has Too Embarrassed to Ask. You can hear conference stuff. I don't get a too embarrassed to ask question. No, no, you can you can ask Lauren for that. She's on the West Coast. You can cool. go find her. Uh, the Recode Replay. It's all easy to find on iTunes. Thanks to Digital Media who distributes all this stuff. Thank you to everyone. We're back next week with an awesome guest. See you soon.